All right, everyone. Welcome again to Christ the King. Uh, if you have a Bible, uh, please open it to Romans chapter 12. Uh, today we're going to start a study of Romans chapter 12. And uh, this chapter is about what it means for us to offer up our entire life to God. And the effects that happen in our community when we do that. I'm going to say it again. This chapter is about what happens when we offer up our entire lives to God. And the effect that it begins to have on the community when we do that. Now, offering our lives as a sacrifice to God can be seriously misinterpreted if we're not careful. We can easily think that if we offer our lives to God that we're earning favor from Him somehow. Or that when we fail to offer our lives up to God like we always and seemingly do, uh, that um, our relationship with Him may be in jeopardy somehow. Uh, We can see that offering our lives to God as a duty or an obligation rather than a joy. So the way we approach what Romans chapter 12 says is critically important. And so what I want to do is I want to start by praying and asking God's Spirit to come and help us understand these verses as we we begin to study them together. So let's pray together to begin. Father, we are so prone to wanting uh, to relate to you like our boss, our employer. Uh, We want to think of you as someone that that we work hard for and you give us back what we are owed. And we just realize, Father, as we study your word, that that is not the gospel. That is not the way you work. And so we pray today that you would guard our hearts from that as we read this passage. That you would uh, keep us close to you. That we see this as a father speaking to his children today. Um, that we would see this as you desiring us to live out our design to be what we're meant to be by your power. So help us today, Father, as we begin this journey together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to read, we're going to just do the first verse today. Okay, Romans chapter 12, and I'm just going to read the first verse. It says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay. Um, I've told many of you this story before, but it's helpful today. There was once an old lady, and she had a pet duck. And she loved this duck. She loved it like a child. She took care of it. She fed it. She raised it from the time that it was a gosling. Is that correct? Um, so she raised this baby duck up. And uh, one day, her, her grandchildren were over playing at the house. And um, one of her grandchildren, uh, little Jack, was out back throwing rocks in the yard. And he saw the duck, and pew, he threw a rock, hit the duck right between the eyes, and it fell dead. And he was scared to death. He didn't know what to do. He panicked. So he grabbed the duck and he walked around behind the back of the house. He dug a hole and he buried it so no one would know. And then, about a day later, Jack's sister, Sally, walked up to him and she said, Hey, Jack, 
I saw what you did with that duck. I knew that you killed Grandma's pet. And all of a sudden, Jack was filled with terror. And Sally said, now listen, from this point forward, you're going to do exactly what I tell you to do, or I'm going to rat you out to Grandma. And so, day by day, uh, job by job, uh, Jack had to do all of Sally's chores from that point forward. And anytime the grandma told uh, uh, Sally to do something, Jack ended up volunteering so graciously to do it for him. And Jack just started becoming tireder and tireder and more and more exhausted from this. And finally, he got to the point where he was just, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go and confess to grandma. So he goes to his grandma and he says, Grandma, I have something I need to tell you. About two weeks ago, I was throwing rocks in the backyard, and I hit your duck, and I killed it, and I buried it in the backyard and hid it from you. And his grandma looked at Jack, and she she said, Jack, Jack, I know that you did that. I saw you do it out the window. And I was just beginning to wonder how much longer you were going to be enslaved to your sister. Now, that's a powerful story to me because of what enslaves us. I you to think about it, what it means to, to be enslaved to something this morning. What, what, is it, what is it that you are enslaved to in your life? What, what is it that uh, you serve? If, uh, if aliens descended on this planet and a, a couple of aliens got out and followed you around for a, a couple of weeks and watched what you did, what would they say that you loved? What would they say that you served? What would they say that you followed? What would they say had your allegiance in your life? Would it be um, your family? Would it be your job? Would it be your comfort? Or maybe the Georgia Bulldogs? Let's hope not. Um, Would it be your phone? (laughs) I, I can't help but think they would think I was somehow addicted to my phone. You see, we're all following something. Something has our allegiance. We serve something in our life. And whatever you give your allegiance to is shaping you and directing you and steering you in a direction in your life. And you're not even aware of it half the time because you're just following. Now, the opening words of what Paul has to say here tell us a lot. Look at what it says at the very beginning. He says... um, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God. This is an appeal. He's starting out by saying, um, I want you to do something. I am trying to persuade you to do something in your life. And what he wants them to do, you read later on, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to offer your life, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He wants them to give their full allegiance to Jesus, their king. Paul wants them, and I want to, I'm going to say this several times today, to be all in when it comes to your faith. That this is not something that you feel some obligation to do or some duty to be a part of. That this is not something that you're doing to earn in your life. But this is something that you are all in in, in your life. That it is um, your, your whole life. And and. You might say that Paul is appealing to us in this chapter to offer our whole life to God in response to God 
giving his whole life to us. Okay? He is appealing you to offer your whole life to God in response to God offering his whole life to you in his son. So I want to think about the passage with those two lenses today. First of all, what does it mean to offer your whole life to God? Or to, as he says, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Um, I have a friend who planted a church up in the Pacific Northwest years ago. And when he uh, first decided to go up there, he, he was trying to decide if he wanted to wear a clerical collar. You know what a clerical collar is? It's what the Catholic priests wear and some Anglican priests wear them and some Presbyterians wear them today. Um, and basically, it's just a symbol publicly that you are a minister, that you are a priest generally. And um, my friend was trying to make the decision about whether or not he wanted to adopt that as part of what he did in his church plan. Um, and he said there were pros and cons. Some of the pros were that folks would instantly know that you're a minister, and that's helpful. Um, he said another pro was that it leads to good conversations with the gospel, that people will oftentimes just come up and talk to you because they know you're a minister. Or maybe they'll open up to you in ways that they would not necessarily open to someone else because of confidentiality that they know that you adhere to. Um, another one was that it, uh, it's just a generally a sign of who you represent, you know, that you are a picture of, of being a man of God, so to speak. So those are some of the pros. Some of the cons, though, were, um, well, um, the, the recent immorality of those who wear those collars and the um, reputation that follows some of that. Um, another is that wearing that thing means that you're always on as a minister, right? Uh, uh, there's no hiding it. Uh, you can't avoid certain people uh, by, uh, everyone knows that this is what your job is. That there's a pressure to be holy all the time, <laughs> right? To, to be a really good person all the time. And my friend eventually decided that he wasn't going to wear one. He said he wasn't going to do it. And he said that the reason was, in all honesty, he wanted to hedge his bets. That, in other words, he didn't want the pressure of having to carry that priestly weight all the time. Uh, that uh, he didn't think he could handle living the holy life 24-7. That's the way he described it. I thought that was interesting. In other words, he wanted to be able to live multiple lives. <laughs> you know. Um, and um, do you ever feel that way about the Christian life? Uh, that... You want to be holy and pleasing to God, but not all the time, right? That you hedge your bets as a Christian, that you're one person when you're sitting on your couch at home and another person. I had a minister friend once, I was talking to his son, and I said, do you like your dad? His dad was a minister, right? And he goes, which one? And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, there are three of them. Uh, there's, there's the one that's my dad. There's the one uh, that watches Georgia football games and... Uh, there's the one that preaches on Sunday, and I like two of them. <laughs> and you don't tell me which one. But we do this, right? We hedge our bets. We like uh, people to, uh, we, we want to be holy when we feel like we should be holy, but we really just want to let our hair down and sort of be ourselves. And Romans 12.1 really challenges that divided life. Um, here Paul appeals for us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. This means presenting our whole selves to God as an act of worship. God, I'm giving you all of me. This is all of me is for you. 
Now, you know, the old, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were made, and they were often animals that were killed and then offered to God as an atonement for sin. But we learn that now those sacrifices are no longer made because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. We don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sin. He was killed on the altar of the cross for all those who had put their faith in him. So now Paul says that we sacrifice differently in the Christian life. Now we offer our living bodies to God. We now present our whole selves, our thoughts, our feelings, our loves, our resources, our spouses, our children, our homes, our attention, our complete allegiance to God for him to use. Right? Our whole life is an offering in this way. And it's, it's a way in which God has given to us through his son and we give ourselves back to him through the gospel. And it is the ultimate act of worship. Right? That is the ultimate way that you adore God for being God. And, and also, this is a completely countercultural way to the normal way we live our lives. Right? Listen, think about it. It's living your life by offering yourself to people. That's the call here, to live your life by offering. It's an outward-focused life. It's a life of giving rather than consuming. Think about it. Just think about your day-to-day. How much of your day-to-day has been about you consuming and taking stuff for yourself, living your life for you, versus giving of yourself to others? Like that, that is a significant uh, switch in the way that we think about our lives. Um, uh, it's giving rather than consuming. It's kind of like a marriage Um, A giving of oneself out of love without requiring anything in return. It's crazy how we live our, oftentimes our marriages are transactional. But if we pattern them after the gospel, they should be a giving of ourselves without an expectation of return. And so, of course, this is our, what he calls true or spiritual act of worship. Offering our life to God for his use, despite what it may cost us, um, is the deepest And the most magnificent way of adoring God you can adore. It just is beautiful. And we must understand that Paul is appealing, this is very, very important, to our hearts. Okay? Um, He wants us to want to do this. He's not saying "This this is the rule now. He's saying this is the way of people whose hearts have been changed. He's appealing for us to be all in. Because we want to be all in, right? Um, some of you are reading uh, in a, your discipleship groups the book Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And in that book, he tells, he gives an illustration. It may have been Spurgeon that used the illustration, but it's this illustration of a man um, who lives in this kingdom. And the king, the king is a really wonderful king. He, he meets all their needs, gives all they need, and he's a farmer. And in his farming, he somehow produces this amazing carrot. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's incredibly large, beautiful, just premium produce. And so he goes to the, to the king, and he takes the carrot to the king, and he says, look, you are a wonderful king. You give me all that I need. All that I have is because of your kindness to me. So I have had this just amazing carrot that I have grown, and I want to offer it to you. I want to give it to you as my king. And so the king receives it with gladness and thanks him for it. And he says, you, you have been such a good servant to offer me this carrot. 
I'm going to give you five times the land that you have, that you may farm even more in the kingdom. And the servant was just baffled. I can't believe that you're so kind to me. Thank you for this. And the king sends him on his way with five times the land. Well, sitting in the king's chambers with somebody else who was watching this happen, it was a man, a rich man in the kingdom, and he thought, wow, if he could pull that off, I wonder what I could pull off. So he goes to his uh, stables. He has these great stables and, ho- and horse farms, and he gets the finest stallion that he has, and he brings it into the king's presence. And he says, oh, king, you are such a wonderful and great king. I offer you the greatest stallion that I have in all of my farm." And the king says, well, thank you so much for the stallion. And he receives it. And he sends the man on his way. And the man is is baffled. He's like, but king, this lowly farmer gives you this carrot and you give him five times his land. But I give you this amazing stallion and you offer me nothing else. And the king looks at him and he says, you don't understand, my friend. That farmer gave me that carrot. But you are giving yourself your stallion. In other words, um, what God is interested in from us is to give him our hearts. Not out of obligation or manipulation or guilt, but he wants us to give to him because we love him. And of course, this prompts the question for us, how is this even possible? <laughs> how do we do this? How can we offer our lives to God uh, it, it with with it truly being from our hearts? How do we do that? Well, the answer is found at the very beginning of the passage, the very beginning of verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And we're going to see him, as we continue through chapter 12, often refer to God's mercy and God's grace as the means by which all of this begins to happen inside of us. In view of God's mercy, what is this mercy that Paul is referring to? Is it the... It is the mercy that has been laid out in the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Um, And he is saying that it should be our only motivation to offer our lives up to God. I'm going to say that again. Like what he's been writing about in Romans, the, the, the previous 11 chapters are framing God's mercy, which is our only, our only motivation to truly offer our lives up to God. And so in Romans 1 through 11, I want to encourage you as you have time to read those chapters. Because as we look at chapter 12, chapter 12 is going to sink in rightly only in as much as you understand and think through chapters 1 through 11. Because he is showing for us the extent that God has gone to to make you his. The extent that God has gone to to justify you or to make you right with him. And it looks a little bit like this. I'll give you a little snippet of what they talk about in the first 11 chapters. One is that you're more sinful than you think you are. That your sin is not just the actions that you have that are incorrect or wrong, but it's also your attitude and even your very nature that is corrupted. And also... Sin has rendered us unable to make ourselves right with God. We cannot fix ourselves because our sin is so rampant and our nature is so opposed to him. So only by sending his son as a sacrifice for our sins does God satisfy his own justice and make a way for us to be forgiven. And these initial chapters of the gospel, excuse me, of the initial chapters of Romans... Um, show us that this justification or being made right with God leads to a newness of life for us. So in other words, God makes you right with himself 
And because of that, he gives you a new status that you're not guilty anymore. That every day you wake up in the morning or you go to bed at night and you feel the weight of the junk in your life, that your life is a mess, that you're a failure, that you're not what you want to be, that you treated your wife or your husband in a way that you shouldn't have, that you yelled at your kids again or your kids, you yelled at your parents again or whatever it may be in your life and you feel the weight of that sin and God, because of His Son, looks at you and says you have a new status. Not that you're that jerk that person who has done these things, that person whose heart is blackened with sin, but I'm declaring you not guilty. That's how I look at you. Justification, just as if you never sinned, right? That's the picture of justification. He gives you a new status. And he also gives you a new family. Not only has God forgiven you of your sins and declared you righteous, but he said, I'm now your dad. You're now part of my family. Your brothers and sisters, though you may have weird relationships with them, you now have new brothers and sisters in my family of people that are all lined and thinking similarly about the faith. He gives you a new status, a new family, and a new future. God begins the process of renewing us and changing us, catching up our insides with what he's declared true about us. Now, I want to I read a quote from you. I should have asked the Derringers how to pronounce this. Um, but there's this, there's this quote by someone called Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I think that's right. Who knows? That's, okay, well, whoever that is, this is the quote. I love this quote. It says this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood or assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Did you hear that? If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood or assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Romans 1 through 11 is written that we would long for the endless immensity of the sea. They were meant to give us a vision of God and his incredible kindness, the deep love that you cannot even understand, and that in that view of mercy we would offer ourselves to him. You see that? That's the picture. Paul is giving us a pattern. God's mercy leads to our worship. Romans 1 through 11 leads to Romans 12. Doctrine, what we believe about God, leads to practice, what we do for God. Indicatives, what God says about himself, leads to imperatives, what God says that we should do. God giving his whole life for us leads to us offering our whole life to him. That's the picture. Earlier in Romans, chapter 2, verse 4, says this. Do you, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Man, that should be music to your ears, that God's kindness is what is intended to lead you to repentance. God's mercy leads you in this beautiful way to turning your life over to him, to offering yourself to him. And we have a lot to learn from that principle. I hope that will be a Christ the King principle that we remember kindness leads to repentance. Not harshness, but kindness. Mercy leads to repentance. You see, we try to bring about change in our, with our power rather than our mercy. Have you ever noticed that? That we try to push people into changing 
rather than uh, leading with mercy and kindness. Uh, Paul Tripp has a book on parenting that I encourage all of you to read. It's an awesome book. Uh, But in that book, he writes that there is uh, no place that we see this uh, more true than in our relationship with our children. Um, We simply do not have the power to change our children. Okay? Look at me. Parents, you can't change your children. You don't have the power to do it. You can't change their hearts. Right? Also, you can't change your spouse. You don't have the power to change your spouse. You can't change your kids. You can't change your spouse. You can't change your parents. Children have already figured that out. Um, But we try. And Paul Tripp says that we use what he calls power tools to make it happen. I think this is hilarious. Power tools. And here are the three power tools that he says that we often use to try to change people. Number one, fear. We try to force people into being like we want them to be. We try to bully people into being who we want them to be, right? Uh, Number two, reward. We try to offer compensation for people to change, right? Here, I'll give you this if you do this. And the third one, which is the one I'm very good at, is shame. We mock and guilt people into changing, right? Now, the problem is that these power tools work but only for a short period of time. They only work temporarily because they don't have the power to change people's hearts. They just modify their behavior. If, you, if you're afraid of me and you do something, when I'm not around, you're going to do what you want, right? Um, if I offer you a reward, what happens when the reward runs out and you don't get compensated anymore, right? If I shame you into doing something, you know, oftentimes people who are shamed for what they do, what they do is it just, they just sink deeper into hiding to continue what they're doing in their life. So the problem is that these power tools work, but only temporarily. They do not have the power to change our hearts, only our behavior for a short period of time. And God is not interested in behavior modification. He wants your whole self. And that begins with your heart. And only mercy and kindness lead to heart change. And there's no way that we will truly offer ourselves to God without a view toward his mercy. That's why he says here, therefore, brothers, I like the NIV's translation. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. So here's the conclusion. We're going to end here. Um, In the Old Testament, the greatest act of salvation that we see was when God led his people through Moses, out of Egypt. Remember this, where he saved his people? He he brought these plagues upon Pharaoh. Finally, Pharaoh lets the people go. They begin to travel, but his heart is hardened again, and he pursues them. And he's got the greatest army in the history of civilization following what are probably a million Israelites nomadically wandering through uh, the desert. And God is leading them uh, through uh, a pillar fire by night and a sort of a vortex tornado by day. They're following him and he leads them right to the edge of the sea, the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is closing in, this incredible army right behind them. And they're seeing them coming and they don't know what to do and they're all afraid. And God says to Moses, put your staff in the water. And when he does, the most amazing act of salvation in the Old Testament happens. The water parts, okay? 
and opens up this gully to the other side. And what we think is probably a million people walk through that water. I don't know if you've ever seen the children's movie, The Prince of Egypt. It's so neat because it shows what this might have looked like. And the people are walking through it and it's dark because they're, they're inside these walls of water and they have torches and you see fish swimming through the water on the side. It's kind of amazing. But that idea of this, imagine, imagine with me just God separating an ocean for you. And imagine walking with a million other people through those two walls of water to safety. And then imagine coming out the other end and looking back and seeing the greatest army in the world coming through and the waters collapse on them and killing them all. Saving you. Now, imagine what's next. You come out on the other side and you're praising God. I can't believe this just happened, right? This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. I, I will never see anything like this again. God, what do you want me to do? And God takes them to a mountain. And you know what he does? He gives them the Ten Commandments. That's the next thing that God does, is he gives them the Ten Commandments. Now that's weird, because I don't think those people would have seen those commandments as duty, do you? (laughs) They would see them as a love language. This is how God is telling me I can love him, what it really means to follow him, what he wants my life to be like. You see, Romans 1 through 11 is like walking through that water. It's like walking through the Red Sea. You're getting to see the amazing work that Jesus Christ has done for us. And beginning in Romans 12, we're starting to get those commandments. This is what it means for you to love me. And it's time for us to put on the clerical collar. Um, Not because we have to. uh, Not because God will punish us if we don't. Not as a way to earn God's kindness. Not even because we owe God because of his mercy, right? But because we love him and we have a vision of his mercy that compels us to offer everything that we have up to him and begin to live priestly lives, lives that are holy and blameless for him. So I want to encourage you as Christ the King, as we begin to work through this in chapter 12, to start thinking about your own life and what it means to offer it to him. And it may mean small changes in what you do every day. It may mean big changes to what you do. It may mean saying yes to certain things that you've never said yes to before. It may mean saying no to things that you've said no to for a long time. I don't know what it's going to mean for us. But I do know that um, this is an appeal by God to us as his church to begin to offer ourselves to him. And as we begin to do so, I think we're going to see miraculous things happen uh, because of God's kindness. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we are grateful for uh, the work that Jesus has done for us. We pray that we would, through the way we live our lives, make him more famous. Uh, We are so thankful for, um, Jesus, how you loved us and and brought us into true life with you, even though we were at war with you. Please help us, Father, to see uh, what the good life is truly like and how that good life is only found in your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.